Welcome to the first and only episode of Demystifying DID. This podcast episode is going to focus on dissociative identity disorder, commonly referred to as DID. And the way that we're going to do this is by speaking with a few different people who are intimately involved in the DID world. There will be an interview with Dr. Melissa Zeligman of Georgia State University, who will share the more broad academic research perspective on the disorder. Then we will hear from Annalisa Darenthal, who is a licensed professional counselor who works in the realms of trauma and specifically dissociative identity disorder. The podcast will finish with an incredible interview with Tammy Kennedy, who describes herself as a recovering survivor of dissociative identity disorder. In my interview with Annalisa, we do reference a few things here and there that Tammy says, but you will hear it all in this episode, and I hope you learn something. joining me. Of course. We discussed you're kind of here to represent not only a counselor, you have your PhD in counseling at a practice, but you've also done research on DID, so just a more um, maybe academic perspective. As you're learning, just the overlap with trauma and DID uh, is almost 100%, so it makes sense. I feel like if you're not in the field, it might not add up so nicely, but within it, it makes total sense. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering if your perception or understanding of DID, um, evolved or changed throughout your work with it, either research or, um, meeting the people that you met who live with it, if you can remember kind of how your perception of it changed. Yeah, I'm sure. Because, um, you know, I did, I had like no experience with this prior to starting the research team. And so my perception was probably what most people's perception is, stuff that's, like, drawn from media and the movies and, like, this just kind of, like, dramatic representation of what DID is. And then when I started meeting people living with DID who were, like, part of the research team, it was like, oh, well, this doesn't match up with, like, a media portrayal Mm -hmm. of what this is. And so then I, I started to see it as something much more human, I think, which is probably would be helpful for a lot of people to see. And then I, yeah, I think I, I think I started to, when I was doing interviews with people with DMD and that kind of stuff, I think I shifted to see DID as almost like an experience that saved lives. And so to be able to dissociate when there's a ton of childhood trauma is probably what saved a lot of people during that time and was something that was like a protective factor Mm -hmm. rather than just purely problematic symptoms and debilitating symptoms, but was actually something that was needed so that somebody could get through really, really painful times. Um, And so that was a shift that happened when I started to see it as almost like a gift Mm -hmm. rather than these really negative symptoms. That's kind of how my uh, perception has changed. Kind of how I'm starting to see it as like a positive adaptation rather than like a maladaptive mishap. Yeah, which I mean, it could certainly lead to maladaptive behaviors and problematic things in somebody's lives. But at the time when that much trauma is happening, like, how else could you have gotten through that? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was a pretty necessary adaptation. Yeah. Related, but a little bit more professional opinion. Okay. How do you feel about diagnosis? And how do the people you've met living with DID feel about diagnosis? Well, I think this is probably for any diagnosis that, you know, is in the DSM. A lot of people have mixed opinions on this. Um, And so certainly I think... Sometimes to have a label on things is problematic. 
but I think a necessary, a problematic perhaps because it, it leads to resources and treatment and all those great things. But in an area like this, I think that uh, I've seen people feel great comfort in receiving a diagnosis, especially if it's delivered in a way that isn't tied to intense shame or stigma or shock or whatever that may be. Because uh, to have lived with something, to have had like lapses in memories, to have had these uh, loss of time, to have people uh, not be able to maintain relationships with you, whatever it looks like, and to have these stressors in your life that aren't great and are leading to to difficulties in your life to be able to have like an answer for that uh, can be a huge comfort to somebody to say oh like that explains so much of why life has been so hard so i've actually seen that it can be something really comforting to people and then i you know i've I've chatted with so many family members siblings spouses of people with did and it, it, it gives them something sometimes to hold on to because it's like, okay, well, now I at least have something I can start reading about or start looking into uh, so I can see how can I better uh, work with or support my loved one, mm-hmm. um, knowing that something has been feeling not great in this relationship and something has made this relationship really difficult, but now I have something to hold on to. I'm like, okay, well, that's explaining a lot of this. Now, how can we learn how to support and manage this? And I feel like DID in particular, not to compare diagnoses, but I think it would be a particularly comforting diagnosis just because I imagine it would feel like such a unique experience that it would be normalizing to know not only do other people live with this, but enough people that helping professionals know about it and know how to help. Right, right, right. It's not just that you're broken or busted right. or lazy or you know angry or violent whatever it is it's like oh there's there's some explanation for all of these things that you've been experiencing mm-hmm. yeah yeah I think we're on the same page yeah yeah what are your beliefs about the level of control that a host has over their altars my belief about the level of control um I think you know I think if somebody had complete control then it wouldn't be problematic at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what sometimes gets in the way of control is like fear. Like sometimes people have altars that they're terrified of or say scary things or threaten or things like that. Or the other way around is like, I want to give in because it's like, a, I have an altar of comfort. So many people have an altar of like a child or a number. And so those altars sometimes bring great comfort and it's somebody who like will protect and, and tell you it's okay. And so like, why wouldn't I, why would I want control over that? I want, I want that person around right. almost to, to give me some of that comfort and love. And so I think the, the goal is almost to get to a place where it's, it's control and also like an acceptance and an acknowledgement and I continue to move on and function. And so it's, it's that I don't have to necessarily give in when there's this presence mm-hmm. of altars. Um, and so I, I guess that's control. To mm-hmm. gain more control would be a therapeutic goal, um, but also just like an acceptance and acknowledgement and moving on. And so not to, yeah, not to completely lose oneself. Mm-hmm. Um, with the presence of these of these altars. So my last question is, what would you want counselors in training to know about working with or researching this population? Yeah, Oof, let's see. So many things, I think. I, probably the first one is it's real. We know that. There's actually a lot of research being done on like a, from like a medical side that's showing just like insane things, like some altars having different allergies than like a host or a different altar. And so it's like, well, you can't fake that. 
or alters like speaking a different language or having like an artistic ability that somebody didn't previously have. And so there's all these things that now we're able to research to give a little bit more credibility to, you know, a disorder that so many people like to discredit. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really helpful because so often that's going to be the biggest piece if somebody's coming in and saying, this is what I'm living with, uh, to have somebody who receives them in a way that they believe their experience, uh, is you know much more helpful and le- much less re-traumatizing mm-hmm. than somebody who chooses not to believe or is skeptical of what somebody's going through. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be a big takeaway. Um, I think the other piece is maybe tied to some of those like awakenings that we had and our perception of how we view DID, uh, just recognizing the ties to trauma, and not just trauma, but prolonged. Often, you know, continuous for years, interpersonal, oftentimes trauma. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, this is a, a reaction to an extended period of just unthinkable pain. And mm-hmm. so, you know, in, a, in that sense, hopefully for new counselors or people who are just being exposed to DID, that mindset might be able to give people uh, some newfound empathy mm-hmm. for individuals living with DID. survivors or did that happen more organically? Um, That came about in my internship, my master's internship. My supervisor specialized in trauma work and he did EMDR and that stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing and I was able to sit in on sessions with him and watch him doing it in action and it just blew me away and I knew from that point that I had to learn EMDR, so I went through the sort of training through the association, and once I was on my own in private practice, I was able to start doing that. And I've been doing that for 11 years. I read um, Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score, yeah. and the chapter on EMDR blew my mind. Yeah. I can't wait to see it. So you have the EMDR training. Do you have any other specialized trauma training or just yes. counseling-related training? Also brain spotting, which comes out of EMDR. It's a newer form of therapy. It's uh, based on a lot of the same principles, but a different approach. EMDR is kind of more left-brained, whereas um, brain spotting is more right-brained. So structured versus unstructured, just a a different approach. So doing both of those has been real good to give me kind of a balance and different ways of dealing with different clients. Mm -hmm. And in the book, the body keeps the score, which is pretty much my only exposure to it, because it's one chapter of a bigger book, it kind of just touches on it quickly, EMDR, and so it tells the miracle story of, like, I've seen it work in one time, and they have processed through, and it's mm. a magic cure, and then sometimes it takes longer, yeah. so what does it usually look like with your clients? Very rarely a one-time fix-all. Yeah. Uh, for single incident trauma, when there's not a history of trauma there, it can be very fast, very quick. Potentially one session, but more likely two or three, a handful of mm-hmm. sessions. Uh, but yes, it can be very quick. But often what you find when people have a single incident trauma, if it brings up PTSD, the reason it does is because it 
stirs up stuff from their past and there's unresolved trauma from their past and so that complicates it and that makes it more involved and take longer can make the recovery process quicker but with PTSD complex PTSD it, it's still going to be a long process and so that kind of brings me to the more DID specific questions are you seeing any clients with DID mm-hmm. right now Yes. So how intentionally did you get involved with working with clients with DID? Not intentionally at all. (laughs) Working with adult survivors of childhood abuse and complex PTSD, it was inevitable that sooner or later I was going to have a client with DID. And I'd say about 10 years ago, I had a client that I was working with pretty intensely on her trauma, and the DID came out. It showed itself, and so I was able to identify it and explain it to her so that she was able to be aware of what was going on, and then we began working more intensely on the DID. If you've noticed kind of a particular essence of the relationship you have with those clients. Well, it certainly creates a greater deepness, a greater depth of the relationship, because you're dealing with the most intimate personal parts of that individual that oftentimes have been hidden from the rest of the world and may not have ever been shared with anybody. So yeah, it can be really intense work. Boundaries, yes. I mean, of course, when you're working with any severe diagnosis, you have to have strong boundaries and you communicate about those all the way through. You know, whenever something comes up, you address it. And transference and counter-transference is kind of par for the course. It happens. And again, when it does, you address it, you get it out in the open, talk about it, and make sure that you remain focused on your goals of therapy. Can you describe what it looks like to work with clients living with DIG? Tammy mentioned that she had one therapist who, years into their relationship, she kind of changed the rules and said, the new practice protocol is that I can only see you, the host, and I can't see any of your alters. Really? Yes, and she told her that she needed to choose, and all the alters had to agree that only Tammy would show up to counsel wow. I wouldn't say it's a protocol. I would say it's a choice based on the way a therapist works, based on their theoretical leanings, how they work with clients. I would never do that. I had one client who told me that she only wanted herself, the host, to be the only one present in the session. But she was happy to talk about her other parts Mm -hmm. and speak for them. And I was like, that's fine. We can do that. Right. You know. I mean, she's still doing the work. Yeah. She's just choosing to be the only one who is present in the office. Right. So that was fine with me. I do internal family systems therapy. Mm -hmm. And as such, there's no way to do therapy without addressing the parts. Right. Or alters, whatever term you want to use. Sure. And again, you can have the host speak for the altar, or you can have the altar come out and speak. And it depends on that person's level of comfort and readiness to do that and the relationship that I have with each of them and communication. When you say you can have the host speak or you can have the altar speak for themselves, Mm -hmm. how much control rests with the counselor and with the client and with each altar? Like, what does that negotiation look like? The comparison that I often make is it's like you're working with a family. 
it's like family therapy. So instead of one person in the room, you've got a group of people sitting. And if you were working with a family, then who decides who gets to speak when is sort of a group decision. So if you're working with a family and the parent doesn't let one of the little kids speak, but speaks for them, that would bother me. I'd be like, what's up with that? Why can't you let your little kids speak? And I just address stuff like that. I just put it out there. Yeah. That's a problem. (laughs) If they're not letting their little kids speak to me, then they're not letting their little kids speak at home. That's not going to work. So you model behavior, you instruct, you teach, you demonstrate, you address problems when they come up. And a lot of it is coaching and instruction on communication skills, relationship building. How do you feel about diagnosis and how have your clients responded to diagnosis? specifically with DID. I think knowledge is power. Information is a good thing. The more you know, the more you are equipped to deal with what you're dealing with. So another thing that Tammy talked about when I met with her was the level of control that she felt living with DID and having these alters. And she talked about she would choose to an extent which alter might come out at any time, which made sense to me just because I think it is a psychological defense mechanism for coping. And choosing is a a powerful thing to be able to do for oneself. Yeah, and to say in retrospect, she was choosing because she lives a life that she sees as post-DID. Mm-hmm. What do you think about all of that, just about control of the alters or integration or recovery? So she says she doesn't have DID anymore? She's a survivor of, of DID. DID. Okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. More power to her. Have you ever seen that happen? Um, yes. I, my first DID client graduated from therapy and she's my pride and joy. (laughs) She's my star. I'm so proud of her. She got married. She has kids now. She says, and this is kind of the way I would think about it too, is it's part of who she is. It's, you can't just will it away, you know, but there's a lot of integration in her. So when she is talking to people or interacting in her life, She's more aware now that the parts that are more active in her life and in her day-to-day thinking are there all the time. They're with her. They're, it's a joint effort. She identifies as host, but inside she knows, oh, this is so-and-so helping me out on this brainy project, or this is so-and-so being sensitive to this friend, or whatever. Yes, there's a lot of integration there, but it's not seamless. It's not like you could just say this person is no longer DID. It's how the brain developed at a very young age and you work with what you got and and an empowerment, not a disability. I love that. It's an empowerment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's such an incredible, it's such an incredible like adaptation. Your brain gave you a way to get through whatever it was that you experienced. Yeah. Um, to note that my interview with Tammy Kennedy took place in a somewhat busy Barnes and Noble. The reason that I mention this is because Tammy made the point when I said, is it all right with you if we sit near other people who might hear the sensitive nature of what we're talking about? Her answer was, it doesn't matter to me. There's no shame for me anymore. And I thought that was amazing. So I just wanted to add that note in here before you hear Tammy's interview. Here's my conversation with Tammy, and I hope that you learn something from her story. Thank you for doing this with me. My first question, because this is for an advanced skills counseling class, is just to talk a little bit about your history with counseling. 
when did you first start counseling and when did mental health become a part of your story and seeking help for it? Wow, that's a great question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. When I was in, geez, I think the fifth grade, I, I used to get mother figures like I would attach to my teachers and we had a school counselor. I was addicted, I guess, to Miss Rollins, my fifth grade teacher. And what I mean by that is I wanted her to be my mom. Like I wrote her notes and said, can I come home with you? Things like that. And I got where I would go up and ask her questions constantly throughout the day, even things I knew. And then the school found out about some other things, like I was falling asleep in class. I brought in a tape one time, a cassette tape. I got it wrong. We had a, an assignment, and I was supposed to tape commercials. Long story short, I, I brought in a cassette of domestic violence accidentally. So the school became known that something was really wrong. So I started having to see my school counselor. So that's when it started that early and she followed me for a couple of years I saw her but I didn't tell her very much as a kid because I was afraid and then I stopped seeing her and didn't go back into counseling until I oh well actually I had just talked to our defects caseworker I had run away at 16 but when I was 17 defects got involved with my sisters who were younger than me and I started having to talk to the social worker with DFAT, in order to keep my sister safe and away from my mom, I started having to tell our story. So she met with me some in a counseling kind of setting because I refused to see a real counselor, but she's the one that recognized the dissociation and she took me to a psychiatrist and some other counselors. And that's when at 17, I was diagnosed with the DID. Back then it was called multiple personality disorder, of mm -hmm. course. And so I saw her for a while in a counseling kind of way and then stopped. And then it wasn't until I was 29 that I had my first breakdown. And that's when I really got into what you would think of as the kind of counseling that you're talking about. I had bad insomnia and there was some triggers in the place where I was living that caused it all to start surfacing the memories. Would you mind telling me a little bit more about when you say a breakdown? What did that look like for sure. you? Sure. Um, I was working full time with Department of Family and Children's Services as a case manager. But then on the weekend, I lived at a group home for teenagers who were pregnant, and I was one of the house parents. And a house therapist and I lived in a separate quarter, and there were squirrels in the attic. Well, we didn't know it was squirrels. I thought it was rats. And because of some childhood trauma when I was really little having to do with rats, so I started getting bad, bad insomnia like really bad. I started eventually hallucinating and, and all that because I just couldn't sleep. I was a wreck for a couple of weeks and rage was coming out that I had no idea why. I had this set of Corel dishes that are not supposed to break and I was determined to prove. So I probably broke a hundred dishes in the kitchen floor of the place where I was living and just left them there because I needed to feel my anger. But I had no idea why I was so enraged and why I couldn't sleep. And I would see the droppings from the squirrels. And so so um, the house therapist that was a friend of mine, she ended up taking me and into my first psych hospital. So how many counselors have you seen throughout the course of your life? A lot. At least five. Mm -hmm. um, the, there was two long-term ones that helped me for the longest, but between eating disorder group a survivor group there because I was in and out of psych hospitals for a long time. So usually, like one time I was in a halfway house and I had to see the therapist at the halfway house for a little bit. And then the group therapists, of course, were different than my individual therapist. Can you articulate what was the most helpful and the most hurtful going through the 
different modalities of counseling you've been through and with the different therapists. The thing that was the most hurtful, I had a therapist that jumped in with both feet and she was very nurturing and all those things and I became extremely dependent on her and the transference got real, real, real intense. And one of the things that happened between us, the first couple of years I saw her, her policy was that she would see alters and she ended up joining another practice or something and about four years into our treatment she changed it up and said the rule was that it needed to be me present the the host all the time and that the alters were not allowed to come well I had never existed that way before and never had known how to face my memories and my thoughts and my feelings just as me and face all that and so that was probably the hardest hardest thing ever and then also the transference which that wasn't her fault you can't stop that from happening if somebody's that deprived of emotional support so that was probably the hardest part the thing that helped the most was my next therapist just the unconditional positive regard that they talk about just somebody to listen and believe you and care about you to me the truth is if you don't have a client that really really wants to change and really wants to get better and not have that identity or not have that crutch anymore you're fighting a really hard battle because it does take a long time to heal but because it takes such a long time to heal you know you can easily get into a rut and go okay well if I give this up then how am I special or you know I don't deserve on my own because there's so much self-hate I don't deserve on my own to get attention or love or whatever so laying that down is it can be very hard mm-hmm. you know becomes your identity yes. and then you're letting go of that piece Right, right. Would you mind explaining when you describe alters and you just recalled a memory where um, your therapist was dining with a child alter, what is that experience like for you? Are you cognizant of the different alters or is this only something you're capable of now looking back? Well, I've had a lot of conversations with other people with DID. Everyone to me has you know, we've all talked about it, but I'm sure they don't admit this to their therapist, but there's a lot more control in it than what you think. I'm not saying that there's never a time when you're not aware, but you know, there's a lot more consciousness to it than what a lot of DID survivors would say there is. To me, what it's like is there's something just too horrible or terrible to face. And a big part of it is what you don't want to face is yourself. If I'm having to sit down and admit now I know you would look at a five-year-old child and you would say that five-year-old child molested by a 60 year old man for example that child no way responsible whatsoever but as the survivor of it because we feel like we are responsible we've been taught that we're responsible so when we recount that story to you first of all we know it's our fault next we feel so dirty And so when you look at that memory and you put yourself in it, it, it's a, it's, it's almost, it it feels almost impossible to talk about it and feel it and it be you. So it's so much easier to let it be somebody else. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's that five-year-old or it's, it's somebody else named so-and-so it's, it's, you know, and so, you know, I certainly lost time and and things like that some and and there certainly was a lot of separation but I also found ways to stay co-conscious when I needed to Mm -hmm. and to be able to do things when I needed to be able to do them but 
it was, uh, I, I know that on a scale of one to 10, as far as being manipulative, I was probably at a hundred, you know, but that's surviving and getting what I needed um, because it was never provided all through childhood. And so what happens is you have to want to get well and then over time you have to want to figure out how to get your needs met on your own. But if you hate yourself, that's never going to happen because you don't feel like you deserve it. So for me, a big part of that healing was one, my faith. And so that helped. And then having a lot of people around me that cared about me, you know, long-term friendships where they helped me attack that shame and self-hate. And once that shame and self-hate's gone, then I can much easier be able to, to face those memories as me. I'm curious how long you were living with an awareness of alters, like having that language and knowing that they were distinct escapes and not just general dissociation or general checking out. I guess it was when I started seeing the social worker with the Cab County defect that I was aware that it was something called you know, multiple personality disorder and that, you know. So around 17, you said? Yeah. Yeah. So how did it feel to get that diagnosis? And were you ever misdiagnosed? At first I thought they were crazy. But I, I knew that I liked to write in different handwritings. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew I liked to write. And I, I knew there was some names. At that time, there were three names that I liked to go by. Or play with felt like a choice mm-hmm. and, and all of those things. It just felt like something protective, you know. Mm-hmm. Like even the anger. I was terrified of my anger. And so Velda was the one that her job was to take on anything having to do with my anger. And it felt like I wouldn't have known the term coping skills, but it just felt like something I did to to help me manage things. You know, I don't feel angry. It's somebody else. You know, as things would come up and it was just too scary to look at, I would just write then, that wasn't me, that was, you know, whatever. And so it's, it's it's a strange coping skill but I do think it saved my life. I yeah. I don't know how to explain it any other way. I don't, I don't know how I could have stood against those memories all at one time. Well, that was it. I'd like to thank my three interviewees, Dr. Melissa Zelligman, Annalisa Darenthal, and Tammy Kennedy. And I thank you for listening to this episode of Demystifying DID.